begin our series on spiritual warfare this morning, and our our scripture reading is uh, very simple. Uh, verse ten, just one single verse. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Heavenly Father, Lord, we call upon you that you would be pleased, Father, to open this verse to our hearts. And Father, open our hearts to the wondrous truth that is contained here, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Every uh, hour, at least every uh, hour that we're awake, uh, we are tempted uh, to walk in our own strength, aren't we? Uh, How quickly we default to walking in our own strength and how often we're found walking in our own strength. And we could talk about many reasons for that. But uh, I I would uh, submit to you that if we knew anything about the power of God, if we knew anything about the strength of God, if we knew anything, to use Paul's language here, the strength of his might, and we truly realized that this strength and this power is available to us, I think that would go a long ways in curing us of that proneness to want to walk in our own strength. And sadly enough, I think that our uh, proclivity to walk in our own strength is largely due to unbelief. Uh, it's, a, it's a painful thing to realize, but what else could we say? Are we, uh, are we completely unaware of the power of God? I don't think that's the case. Not completely unaware. There's many things that we need to learn about the power of God, and that's one of the burdens I have this morning uh, for this morning's message is to open that up. Are we unaware that it's available to us? I, I, I don't think completely, although it might be more, uh, it might be more uh, available to us than we realize. In fact, I would submit that it probably is. So what do we say in response to this? Why are we so prone on wanting to walk in our own strength? It's good old-fashioned unbelief. And uh, I would add to that, especially given the context, and we're going to be looking at a lot of the context this morning. We're only taking one verse this morning, uh, but that verse sits in a context, and we're going to spend a lot of time this morning looking at the context of that verse. But in the context of, the, in the context of this verse, uh, we learn something else, that every hour of every day, if we are believers, we're in a war, aren't we? We are in a spiritual war. War, And if we knew anything about the power of the enemy, if we knew anything about the strength of the evil one and his cohort, and if we might uh, counter Paul's language, if we knew anything about the strength of his might, I, I think we would be scared. I think we'd be scared to walk in our own strength. And again, we have to ask ourselves, we know all these things. I don't think any of this so far is new to, to any of you. We have to ask ourselves then, why are we so prone to walk in our own strength? It's because we don't believe it. May the Lord help us and change us in this. And that's one of the burdens that Paul has for this text this morning, is to change just that. 
You notice the, the first word in, in verse 10 is the word finally. Now, what does that tell us? It's kind of a conclusion word, isn't it? It's kind of like uh, uh, maybe sometimes if the sermon is really monotone and it seems to be uh, going on and on and on, it's something you're looking forward to hearing finally or in conclusion. Um, Paul is saying finally. Now, what does that what does that mean? Well, it, it means that he's getting ready to, to wrap this up. Now, uh, it also means that there's been a lot of things that have gone on before this, correct? And we know this. Some of us are pretty familiar with Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But for the sake of context, turn back to chapter 1 with me, if you will. Let's just quickly look at the context that this verse is, is nestled in. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, we find the author is the Apostle Paul. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Notice the little phrase, to the saints. A lot of people do not realize this. I love to share this with people. A lot of people do not realize. A lot of believers do not realize they are saints. Uh, notice what this says. It says to the saints. Who are the saints? They, as we see as we go through the letter, they are those who believe in Christ Jesus. That's who the saints are. If you are a believer this morning in true saving faith, you are a saint to the saints who are where? In Ephesus. Okay, it's to the believers who are in the city of Ephesus. And of course, from there, it's a circular letter, circular letter meant to, uh, to be uh, given to the church at large. Uh, so it is written to us. It's written to all uh, who believe in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, grace to you and peace from, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse, verses 3 through 14... Uh, we have in the original language one long sentence. It's what our English teachers would call a run-on sentence, isn't it? <laughs> I see one teacher smiling at me right now. That is a long one, isn't it? He goes on and it's almost like the Apostle Paul takes this big deep breath and then he just begins to go clear until he's out of breath describing all of the blessings that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. That's where we're headed. That's where God is taking us, to make us holy. And we're already positionally holy, but we're actually going to be practically holy, uh, Pro, uh, uh, actually holy in, in lifestyle and thoughts and in words and everything one day. Verse 5, he predestines us uh, for adoption through Christ Jesus according to his purpose. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Uh, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. And then in verses 9 and 10, we have kind of the summary of this whole thing, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. What is that purpose? It's a plan to unite all things in Christ Jesus, things in heaven, things in earth. That's the grand plan is the union of all things, things in heaven, things in earth, the union of all these things to Christ Jesus. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, verse 13, to him also, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You see that? The saints are those who believe. You see that? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession. But the Holy Spirit, if you're a saint, listen, if you're a saint, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart. If you do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart, you're not a saint, you're not a believer. This is the chief and fundamental difference between an unbeliever and a believer is the Holy Spirit in our heart. How do we know if we have the Holy Spirit in our heart? Has your eyes been opened to the glories of Christ Jesus? Even if it's just a little bit? Is Jesus now the, uh, the, uh, the fundamental principle upon which you're trying to order your life? I'm not saying, are you walking in perfection? There isn't a single one of us who is. But are you, when you get up in the morning, is he the reason you're getting up? I mean, at the end of the day, is he the reason? Is he really behind what you do? Is ultimately what you, is what you, are you trying to please him in what you do? These are the kind of diagnostic questions we need to ask to see if we're in the faith or not. And be brutally honest with yourself as you ask these questions. Don't kid yourself. Okay? Now, Paul, he blurts out all of these verses. He's, he's basically opening up this treasure chest so that we can see all of the treasures that are in Christ Jesus. That are now ours in Christ Jesus. These are presently ours. And then he breaks into prayer. He breaks into this tremendous prayer, uh, thanksgiving and prayer, which we're going to look at in a few minutes. So we'll, we'll move right on to chapter 2. Uh, he goes on to say that in verse 1, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. We're going to be talking a lot about that in this series. Uh, in verse 3, he says, We all once lived in this and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. But look at verse 4. But God being rich in mercy, because we were righteous. That isn't what it says, is it? It says, because of the great love which he loved us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 9, look down there with me. It's not a result of your works. It's not a result of my works. It's a result of his love. It's a result of his will. It's a result of his mercy. And then in chapter, in chapter 2, verses 11 and onward, the Apostle Paul speaks about the great wall of hostility that's been brought down. And remember, uh, the summary verses in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that it is his intention, it's his will to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ Jesus. And God accomplishes something that I don't think anybody could have thought would be possible. In the first century, he unites the Jews and the Gentiles into one body. And we find that in verses 11 uh, through uh, the end of the chapter. For he says in verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Verse 12, remember that you were, you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one 
You see, that idea of being united to Christ Jesus. Things in heaven and things in earth. In chapter 3, the Apostle Paul moves on to speak about the mystery of the gospel and how it has been revealed to him. Uh, Verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. We're going to look at that verse again in just a little bit. Uh, but the Apostle Paul speaks about the mystery of the gospel being opening, open to him so that uh, he could proclaim that uh, to the Gentiles. And then verses uh, 14 to the end of the chapter, we find a second prayer, very, very much a cousin, close cousin to the first prayer, which we'll look at in a few minutes. I want to ask a question uh, so far. What has the Apostle Paul asked us to do? We haven't looked at every verse, but we've looked at most of them, and we've certainly looked at it enough to see the spirit of what's going on here. What has Paul asked us to do? I think you can probably tell by the way I'm framing the question that the answer is nothing. Uh, The Apostle Paul has so far asked us not to do anything. He hasn't given any exhortation yet. And there's a pattern here uh, in the Apostle Paul's writings and really in the, uh, apostles, the writings of the apostles themselves, uh, where uh, we get, the first thing that we get is this declaration of what God has done in Christ. Uh, the formal term for that uh, is the indicative. You know, you might remember it this way. Uh, the indicative is what, uh, is what indicates what God has done in Christ Jesus for his people. So we have three full chapters Simply about what God has done in Christ Jesus. Paul puts forth all of that, all three of these chapters, before he gives us any words of exhortation. Now in chapter 4, verse 1, immediately in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now you see here we have our first exhortation in the letter. We call this the imperative. The formal word for this is the imperative. And sometimes you will hear the indicative and the imperative. And Paul spends time in the indicative. In other words, he's spending time in what God has done in Christ Jesus. He spends this time uh, showing the riches and the treasures of what God has done in Christ. And he develops that uh, for, uh, at some length before he ever gives us any exhortation. Now, beginning in chapter 4 and onward, Paul's giving us exhortation. And uh, the text that we've taken this morning is the last of those. When he says, finally, he's referring to the last exhortation. Finally, okay, finally. I got, there's one more thing. We can almost think he's saying to us, okay, there's, there's this other thing. There's this one more thing that I want to share with you before I wrap this up. And, of course, you've heard me say many times, uh, when we're studying our Bibles, one of the questions we should be asking is, why is this particular text here? Uh, if we ask that question of this particular passage, we might say, okay, why, is Paul, why has Paul put this at the end here? Why is Paul, you know, wh- why is this the last exhortation? And I, I'll give you a response that I think, uh, uh, it, I, it, it, it's not new to me. I, I've, I've read this in other places. I've heard people talk about this and I, I've bought into it. I think it's, I think it's the, the correct reason uh, that Paul would do this. Paul is a pastor. He's an exemplary pastor. 
And I think as we begin to know things, learn things about Ephesus and the people of Ephesus, it becomes clear why Paul is putting this at the end. And in fact, I think it becomes very clear as to why Paul would take up this subject in his letter to the Ephesians instead of taking it up, for instance, in his letter to the Corinthians or taking it up to his letter uh, to the Galatians or the Thessalonians. Uh, Ephesus was a large city in the ancient world, in the Roman province. It wasn't the largest city, but it was one of the largest cities. I think Rome, if memory serves me correctly, Rome, I think, was about a million strong population. That might not sound much to us today. The world is much more populated today than it was in the ancient world. But a million people in the ancient world was a lot of people. That was a large city. Uh, I think Alexandria was maybe the second largest, don't hold me to that, but it was one of the largest cities, Alexandria, Northern Africa, uh, Antioch was a large city, and Ephesus is in there too, Ephesus is probably around a quarter of a million people, and it was a very sophisticated city, uh, a very religious city, uh, some of you may know that the, the temple uh, to the Greek uh, God uh, Artemis um, uh, was housed there, and uh, uh, Diana is, uh, is her Latin uh, name, if you will, and that temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was approximately 100,000 square feet in size. If you try to imagine one of those uh, uh, ceramic tiles, you know that you can look at at Lowe's or uh, Home Depot or wherever. You know, if you hold one of those in hand, imagine 99,000 more of those laid out. This is a large-scale uh, building. There was 127 marble colonnades that stood 60 feet high. And people all over Asia would come and worship this goddess of fertility, if you will. So uh, they, they had all of this going on. But on top of all of this... Uh, the city of Ephesus was known for all kinds of occultic practices and occultic activity. Uh, they believed in all of these evil spirits and uh, they believed that they needed to constantly placate these evil spirits. In other words, uh, this evil spirit, if you don't appease this evil spirit, well then something's going to happen to you. And if you don't appease that evil spirit, then something else is going to happen to you. And if you don't do the same for these over here and over here and over here, then all of these other things could happen to you. If you put your bulletin in Ephesians 6 and you just turn a couple pages towards the back, a couple of books to the... Uh, book of Acts to chapter 19, we get the inspired history of Paul going into Ephesus, and we learn a lot about Ephesus from this chapter. Page 928, if you're using the church's Bible, Paul does, uh, uh, he, he has a practice when he goes to plant churches and he goes into uh, new soil to plant churches, he always finds a synagogue that's nearby and he begins his his gospel preaching in the synagogue. And we find that that is his practice here in verse 8. We're told that he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Of course, he would have been reasoning and persuading from the Old Testament, correct? From the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, verse 9, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, notice the way, many of your Bibles probably have a capital W, 
Uh, Christianity was referred to as the way. You think of Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, they're speaking evil of Christianity uh, before the, the congregation. They're speaking evil of Christ and uh, evil of what he is doing. Um, Paul withdraws from the synagogue and he takes the disciples with him and he begins reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So Paul is preaching daily uh, in this, uh, this hall, if you will. And this continues for two years, verse 10, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So an enormous amount of people are hearing the gospel. And a lot of people are coming to faith as they hear the gospel. So much so, if you skip down to verse 18 with me, it says, also many of those who were now believers, okay, they've heard the gospel, they've been down to the, the, the town hall, if you will, they've heard Paul preach, the Holy Spirit has accompanied the preaching, has worked in their hearts, has opened up their, their eyes and their minds, uh, they're now confessing Christ, and uh, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. What practices? Verse 19, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This speaks volumes as to why the Apostle Paul would want to include spiritual warfare in his letter to the Ephesians. I read a commentary earlier this week that was written in the 90, early 90s, maybe 90, 92, 94, something like that. And uh, they calculated the... Um, the contemporary value of these books and estimated these books to be worth about a half a million dollars. I read another commentary this week that was produced in the last few years and they performed a similar, uh, using a similar method of calculating, uh, they came up with six million dollars in today's currency. This is a pile of books worth six million dollars. Let's suppose they're off by a million or two. It's a pile of books worth $4 million. What are they doing with this pile of books? You can almost envision them in this big pile, and they've set a match to them. They're burning them. This is an extraordinary ministry that, that the Apostle Paul is going on here, isn't it? Now, I started this talk by saying, listen, Paul is a pastor. And as a pastor, he understands this, that when we become believers, sometimes we are haunted by our past. The things that we did before we became believers sometimes causes terrible anguish in our hearts. And I think um, many of us can relate with that. Now here, Paul has this church that he has planted. And there's an enormous amount of believers in this church who were up to their necks in occultic activity prior to coming to faith in Christ Jesus. They were up to their necks in placating this evil spirit and placating that evil spirit and placating that evil spirit. And some of them undoubtedly, as many, as many churches are, you go into a church, there's people who are very strong in their faith, there's people who aren't so strong in their faith. And if you've got a church... Any church that has this much of this kind of activity going on in its past, you're going to have a lot of people that are still going to be very scared about all of these evil spirits. I think that's the reason. I think that's what's going on here. 
Let's go back to Ephesians 6 again. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Now we can kind of understand why he would say that, wouldn't we? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to be strong in the Lord? And before we answer that question, let's ask another question. What, is the, what does Paul mean when he says the strength of God's might? What exactly is he talking about? Well, is, this isn't the first time this has come up in Ephesians. If we go back to chapter 1 and you look at verses 15, the prayer 15 and onward that we skipped. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul's giving great thanks because he realizes they're only believers because God has blessed the preaching, because God has blessed them. And then he begins to intercede for them. He begins to pray for them in verse 17. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Verse 18, that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened and that they may know uh, what is the hope to which he has called them. And then verse 19, he prays that they would come to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his what? His power. Power towards us who believe. What power? Verse 20. The power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Let's think about that for a moment. You know, I, I, I don't want to make anybody cry this morning, and especially myself, but this week we had, Tammy and I had the painful experience of putting uh, our dog to sleep, one of our dogs. And we were, uh, we were with her while uh, this was happening, and we were looking right into her eyes as she, uh, as she passed away. And I couldn't help but to think as this was happening, as I was watching her life expire, I started to think about the, cru- the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, as Jesus hung on the cross, that same look would have been in, in his human eyes as his, as his, his life ex, uh, expired. And of course, that made me think about the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. There is no human doctor that could come close to revisiting that body on the third day and putting that life back in there. The power that the Apostle Paul is talking about here is the very power of putting that life back into those eyes. I don't know how else to describe it. What do we measure this with? Paul even himself says it's immeasurable. Isn't that what he says? The immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. It's this resurrection power. And by the way, I've also been comforted this week knowing that God is uniting all things in Christ Jesus. He's not just saving souls. He's uniting this world to Christ Jesus. That includes animal life. It's a great purpose, isn't it? But it's not it. It's not all of it. 
Look at verse 20 with me again. He talks about his resurrection, his resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Not just the resurrection power, but also the ascending power that ascended Jesus to the right hand of God the Father Almighty in glory. And uh, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There's the pastor coming out again. You guys are worried about all these spirits. You're worried about this evil spirit. You're worried about that evil spirit. You're worried about all this uh, evil spirits here that you used to placate with your incantations and you'd open up your books and you'd read your, your cat, you'd cast your spells on them and do all of this stuff. And listen, listen. Christ Jesus is above them. He's above them. I think it's interesting, as one author I read this week points out, that the Apostle Paul doesn't approach them like we would as parents. You know, when, you, when little Junior is crying in the middle of the night and he says there's a monster under his bed and you go in into his room and you say, well, okay, there's, I'm going to look under your bed, okay? And you look under the bed and... Uh, there's nothing under the bed, but everything he swept under the bed last time he was called to clean his room. There are no monsters under your bed. I'll stay with you until you go back to sleep. I'll be right here. And if a monster should appear, I'll take care of it for you. Paul doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't say, listen, you don't need to worry about these evil spirits because they're not really real. You don't need to worry about them because they're not really, they're not really real. That's not what he says. Why? Because they are real. They are real. No, instead what Paul says is Christ is above them. He is seated. He's not standing. He is seated above them. Now, let's take all of this and move to chapter 2 for a moment. You see in verse 1, the Apostle Paul begins to say, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Okay, this resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that opened up your eyes so that you could believe in Christ Jesus. You following me? When we pray for a, an unbeliever to come to saving faith, in order for that to happen, God has to take that resurrecting power and he has to apply it to the heart of that individual. Nothing short of that has to happen. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're in Christ Jesus, that is exactly what God has done to you. That same power that rose Jesus that put that life right back into those eyes. The human eyes. It's that same power he put in the eyes of your heart to enable you to see Christ Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. If you look at verse 4. God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Verse 6. And raised us up. That ascending power has been uh, uh, granted to us as well. 
Because he has raised us up to the right hand of God the Father Almighty with Christ Jesus. And we might say, how is that possible? Because we're all sitting right here in the city building in Chester. How can we be be up there and be sitting here? Christ is the head of his church, is he not? And his people are the members, correct? Where the head is, the members are as well. And it's in that sense that we are seated right now in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Our citizenship is no longer here. Our citizenship is in heaven with Christ Jesus. Because we have been recipients of the strength of his might. Now, hopefully verse 10 is starting to, uh, starting to mean, take on some new dimensions. When the Apostle Paul says, finally, finally, there's this one, there's this, this one other thing I want to go over with you, you know, before we wrap up. Uh, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might. I want to say one more thing. Let me add a finally now. We like the word be strong. We see those words be strong. That's great. That sounds like one of our action movies. Or that sounds like, that sounds like all the, really most of the TV shows that aren't reality TV are cops and robber shows, right? I don't really watch a whole lot of TV because quite frankly I'm bored to death with it. To me it all looks the same. I mean, it really is the same story in every show. There's these guys, it's a team of them, or some strong individual, and there's bad guys, and the strong individual has to look down into the recesses of his heart, and he's got the skill sets in and of himself to take on all things. And when we hear, be strong in the Lord, that's usually what goes on in our minds. But the word here, be strong in the Lord, our text doesn't bring this out too well, but it's passive. The verb is passive. What's that mean? You say, man, I just, man, grammar wasn't my biggie. It wasn't mine either. I had to learn all this stuff since I got out of high school. Being passive means that the action is being done to you. You are not doing it yourself. We could say be strengthened. Be strengthened in the strength of his might. We go back to the prayer in chapter 2. Chapter 3, I'm sorry. And look at verses 14 to end. We see this being very, made very clear. Paul breaks into intercession again in verse 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be what? Strengthened. So what? With power through his spirit in your inner being. So we're to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. For what purpose? Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love. You may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. In other words, in short, we could say this. This same resurrecting power, the same ascending power is the power that reveals the love of Christ in our hearts. It's available to us. It's more than available. We've got a command to make use of it. And that's what we're going to be seeing over and over again as we go through Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. We're being commanded to take advantage of it. We are sinning when we don't. So 
it's not that it's just like, you know, that God says, you know, I got these resources. If you care to use them, they're right here. You know, it's not like we've gone to a, to a friend's house and we're guests in the room and they say, listen, we got, uh, uh, we got these tiles here. If you want to use them, they're all yours. And, you know, the bathhouse is yours. If you guys want to go swimming or something, feel, feel free. Just to... No, that's not what it's like. God is saying, listen, here are these resources. Use them. That's a command. Use them. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, speaking of the gospel, he says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the what? The working of his power. This is this power that enables us for gospel ministry. We can't do gospel ministry without it. I had to be really careful this week that I wasn't leaning in my own resources. Wouldn't this be a travesty to pre- preach a message like this that I leaned in my own resources to come up with? I'm guilty of the same thing everyone else in the room's guilty of. I often default uh, to self-sufficiency myself. And I was thinking earlier this week, boy, this would really be something if I, if I failed to pray and I failed to lean on God for this message. Boy, of all of the messages... They would, it would always be a failure, but of all of the messages, God has this strength available to us that he's commanding us to make use of. That should excite us. And we are sinning when we don't make use of it. I don't say that to be mean. I'm saying I say that so that we'll take it, you see. Because every hour of every day we're in a war. And every hour that we're awake in the day, we're tempted to be self-sufficient. Why are we so tempted to be self-sufficient? Because the evil one is scared to death that will take God up on this strength. He can beat us all collectively if we lean on our own strength. He can't beat a single one of us if we're clothed in the armor of God. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess our proclivity to self-sufficiency before you afresh this morning, Lord, and we call on you, uh, Father, to work uh, uh, the, the vision, the illustrations of this, this great might that you uh, have possession of, that you're offering to your children in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that you would be pleased, Lord, to wean us from the silly self-sufficiency that we walk in so much of the time, Father. And we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased, Father, uh, to uh, change our habits, that we would be constantly looking to you, uh, that we would be in this armor that Paul would talk about, that we'd be constantly looking to you, drawing from your strength, drawing from this great working of your might, drawing from that resurrection and ascension power that uh, you have already used, that you've used on Christ Jesus and that you've used on each one of us as you've brought us into Christ Jesus. So, Father, we pray that you would work into our lives that we would progressively walk more and more in your strength and instead of our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.